Hello and welcome to episode 87 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by my colleague CJ McKinney. We are covering the events of March 2021. We've got two main sets of reform proposals to cover, the so-called New Plan for Immigration, a lot of which is quite old, I think. Um, We've got proposals to reform judicial review to cover. This is the means by which the government is held to account and the rule of law maintained. We've got a bunch of new rules that we're going to talk about, although not in a lot of detail in this podcast. You may be relieved to hear a handful of interesting cases, and we're going to finish by talking about a proposed new code of conduct for presenting officers. That's the officials who represent the Home Office in Immigration Appeals. If you'd like to claim CPD points for listening to the podcast, um, head over to freemovement.org.uk slash training, and we have a monthly quiz that goes with the podcast for you to do that. Right, CJ, over to you. Thanks, Colin. We'll start with the the first of those reform proposals. The first of these is the Home Office's new plan for immigration. So it consists of a government policy paper and a consultation document published on the 24th of March. And it's largely to do with asylum, uh, so-called reforms to asylum. Also some stuff on illegal immigration and British nationality law in the mix. Um, But at the heart of this new plan is trying to discourage people from making clandestine journeys to the UK in order to claim asylum. And we'll go into more detail on that in a moment, but I just wanted to get your sort of overall reaction to this document, because our initial take sort of on the day was that, you know, despite all the spin about it being the most radical reform in decades and all the rest of it, we sort of felt it wasn't actually very radical, lots of old and or unworkable ideas in it. A couple of weeks on, have you changed your mind about that? I've got mixed feelings about it, because on the one hand, a lot of it is pretty horrible, basically. And it makes the lives of genuine refugees very unpleasant, potentially. But on the other hand, that's nothing new. Um, And the the sort of supposed purpose of doing that, the kind of overarching, overarching policy behind it is to kind of put them off coming in the first place. And there's just no evidence at all that that will have that effect. So it's kind of this odd combination of horrible but also ineffective and old so it's not really going to have very much impact and it's another one of these sort of this just disastrous sort of (laughs) list of asylum policies where the government of the day talks up their ability to control the number of asylum seekers um, and introduces these policies which purport to be able to do that but which can't on their own terms have that effect and the, the the big exception to this, um, it's one of the things we'll bang on about in in the book Welcome to Britain, is the um, is the Labour policy really in the early two thousands of um, first of all externalising the border, so requiring visas from abroad and so on, and secondly securitization of the border, so um, just lots of borders, uh, fences, um, you know, checks taking place on on foreign soil, particularly in France, basically, to stop people coming. And those those kind of policies have actually been very effective. I mean, there's lots wrong with them, but they have cut the numbers dramatically. Um, but this kind of deterrent stuff of treating people really unpleasantly once they've reached the UK, there's just no evidence that that has any impact at all other than making people really miserable. Yeah, I suppose the most eye-catching proposal, specific proposal around this was to create this sort of second class of refugees to punish the clandestine entrance. So if you arrive by boat, for example, they'll keep you out of the asylum system for as long as possible. 
they'll try to send you back to any safe country you've been through if possible which it's not possible at the moment but they'll try to put in agreements and then eventually if you are granted asylum here you won't get proper refugee status but you'll get this temporary protection status no recourse to public funds i.e no access to the welfare system is that not a fundamental shift this sort of two-tier system um, I'm not sure that it is. I mean, I, I'm not saying that it's not bad and it's not unpleasant, but we already have a two-tier system where the life chances of refugees who are resettled here are radically different potentially to, to the life chances of refugees who arrive by regular means. If you arrive through the resettlement scheme, you get all kinds of assistance and integration assistance from um, from the government and um, you know, you're sort of helped to get on your feet in lots of ways. You're not traumatized by the journey here and you're not traumatized by the process of going through um, the asylum, the refugee status determination process either, which is itself quite a demeaning experience. Um, Whereas if you arrive by regular means, you are. So I think we've already got that kind of two-tier system. This is going to make it a lot worse. um, And it's very strongly, um, arguably in breach of the refugee convention, um, but like we've been, so we had a series of blog posts about some of these issues on on free movement recently, and I'm not sure that saying it's in breach of the refugee convention is quite the uh, killer argument that some people seem to think, um, because you know the refugee convention is is basically unenforceable in the UK where it's not incorporated into to law properly, and anyway, it's not very persuasive. It just doesn't sort of change many people's minds. Whereas I think the sort of moral and ethical arguments about how we should treat re- refugees are perhaps a bit more sort of promising as as uh, territory than kind of purely legal type arguments. Yeah, I think you said that if you just say, well, the Refugee Convention allows people to uh, cross the channel on boats. So there people go, well, why don't we get rid of this Refugee Convention? It sounds like a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. And the Refugee Convention, I've been looking at this fairly carefully over the last sort of couple of weeks. Um, there's a, and I've got a review pending for um, one of the major refugee law scholars, um, James Hathaway. He's published a new, absolutely huge book. In fact, I've got it, got it in front of me right now, absolutely huge book on the rights of refugees where he goes into a lot of depth on these issues. And one of the provisions of the Refugee Convention does protect refugees from being penalised for the way that they enter the country. And there's a very strong argument that that isn't just preventing criminal sanctions, but also preventing like any disadvantage, basically. Um, so there are some pretty strong arguments here. It's just that there's no court you can argue them in because there's no court of enforcement internationally for the Refugee Convention. And as I say, it's not incorporated into, into UK law. So um, it's all very interesting from an academic point of view, but it's, it's not that helpful for an actual refugee on the ground. Uh, before we we move on from asylum, there's been a Supreme Court decision that's also relevant. So G versus G, 2021 UKSC 9. At first glance, it seems super niche because it's about what happens if there's a child who's claiming asylum, but simultaneously the child is the subject of child abduction proceedings under the Hague Convention, which of those two procedures takes precedence, which I guess wouldn't be very common. But in your write-up of the case, you focused on a finding which was more generally applicable and, and quite timely. Yeah, and this is on the the decla- what, what scholars, academics, lawyers call the declaratory nature of, of refugee status, which is that the, the fact is the Refugee Convention has a lot in it, but there's also a lot missing. And one of the things that's missing is any kind of procedural protection for refugees or any reference to a status determination process or anything like that. And 
One of the reasons for that is because the Refugee Convention simply says that if you meet these requirements, meet these criteria, then you are a refugee. So what you are, what's happening to you when the UK or some other country assesses whether you are or are not a refugee is they're simply confirming something that was already the case, basically. So they're declaring that you are already a refugee. So it's not that you become a refugee from the moment of recognition. It's just that they're recognizing something that was already the case. Uh, and this is, this is not particularly novel. It's in the UNHCR handbook, which dates back to 1979. It's reflected in previous um, cases domestically and also internationally, but it's nice to have a reminder from the Supreme Court here that that is the nature of refugee status. Um, I think before sort of moving on, should just quickly cover what else the the case actually says. So it's it's about these quite rare pre- examples of overlapping refugee claims and Hague uh, child abduction cases, and essentially says that the um, Hague case should be determined first by the High Court. The Home Office should be involved from the start. And then once the um, High Court has reached a decision on that, any appeals are are finally disposed of, then the asylum case can and should be decided, taking into account um, the the findings that were made during the um, child abduction proceedings. And that has the, from my point of view, slightly uncomfortable effect that um, basically the alleged persecutor um, may well end up taking part in effectively what what become quite an important element of, of refugee proceedings. But, you know, these cases are pretty rare and that's not the way the court sort of conceptualizes it. They're much more about, you know, the parents, the alleged persecutor has to take part in the child abduction proceedings. Charlie Good, so a clear process there for those, as you say, fairly rare cases. Let's go to this other set of proposed changes, judicial review, the government published the findings of the Lord Falk's review of judicial review, uh, if that makes sense, on the 18th of March, alongside a consultation on uh, changes following up the report. So totally separate from this new plan for immigration stuff, but similar vibe. They want to reduce the legal remedies available to uh, migrants uh, and others. So the the Falk's review did not, in the end, deliver this sort of ferocious attack on activist judges that perhaps the government was hoping for and that some had feared. So there's not a huge amount of concrete proposals in the consultation around restricting judicial review because the the report didn't give the government ammunition for that. But there is one concrete commitment that really affects immigration lawyers, and that's to scrap CART judicial reviews, as they're called in England, EBA judicial reviews in Scotland. A CART or EBA case is where you're appealing typically against being removed from the UK, you've been denied permission to appeal to the upper tribunal, but you can judicially review that decision to refuse to hear the appeal in the high court and potentially reopen your tribunal appeal that way via the high court. Sort of gives people a second bite of the apple. Um, But this review found that hardly any of these CART EBA cases succeed and the government has said, cool, we'll just scrap the whole process. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it, it's a bad move if or when it happens. And we've this isn't a, not a new proposal either. You know, we, we had um, ouster clauses proposed previously under Labour government introduced, and that's what the CART EBA uh, legislation, sorry, case was all about. It was about an effective, what arguably was an ouster clause, but was interpreted as not being. So we, we've kind of been here before. Whether it'll be different this time, who only knows. But these these CART jails, they are, in my experience, they're very rare. You know, I've only ever put in a handful of, of CART JRs. And I, I've been so long since I've, I've 
done any that I, I can't remember what the outcomes are. I can only remember one that succeeded. I can't remember how many others I've done that haven't succeeded. I can remember one that didn't. Um, but I think you know, most um, barristers are very selective in which cases they put forward because the threshold is very high. They're very difficult to meet and people exercise a lot of restraint, I think, in, in making these applications. But that's not true of everybody as far as I've seen. And some of I've noticed that some of the Hamid-type cases have highlighted examples of uh, misuse of the, the CART procedure and sort of people using generic grounds and just using the procedure, even where the, the, the facts and law don't justify it. But this would be you know, quite a retrograde step if it were ever to happen, because as, as, as good as the upper tribunal is these days, and it's much better than it used to be, it's important to have these checks for occasional cases to stop bad law being fossilized and kind of contained within the upper tribunal with no external oversight and no no check on it. So no, it'd, be a, it'd be definitely be a bad thing if it happens. Who only knows whether it actually will or not? Yeah, there's a big argument over the statistics in the report about how few cases of errors succeeded. So perhaps if those are uh, refuted effectively, then the government will change its mind. Who knows? Well, our, our governments that's so keen on evidence-based policymaking will be persuaded by actual facts. I sadly think not. But what, what I, I think what I'm saying is it might not happen is that, you know, this kind of judicial review ouster is controversial. The House of Lords will have something to say about it. Government can probably push it through anyway. They've got a big majority in the House of Commons, but then the courts are also very unenthusiastic about the idea of ouster, and will be looking for ways to to interpret it otherwise. And you know, th- this could end up being a sort of big constitutional case again, um, which is probably something the government would quite look forward to. Cart number two in a few years' time. Yeah, let's look then at economic migration. And you mentioned there's been a statement of changes to the immigration rules. HC one two four eight published on the fourth of March. In the nature of these things, it doesn't only cover economic migration, but mostly that's what the changes are about: working student visas mainly. So it's, for example, introduces the graduate route, capital G for graduate uh, students to stay on and work in the UK without a sponsor from um, July. Uh, it also adds some new jobs to the shortage occupation list, uh, long overdue. The recommendations uh, from the Migration Advisory Committee happened last year, and some of them have never been implemented. There are some new ways of getting a global talent visa. It's pretty much automatic if you've won certain prizes, such as an Oscar or Nobel Prize, really high-end stuff like that. Various other changes. It's a big document. I won't list everything on the podcast. Um, apart from what I've said, is there anything that jumped out for you? I, I thought you captured um, the feeling that most lawyers or anybody sort of trying to get to grips with this would 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 feel stare long enough into the abyss, and the abyss stares back. You said, um, "Yeah, I, I couldn't put it better myself." Well, that was yeah, specifically in relation to the changes to Appendix EU, which is just the most penetrable gobbledygook. Um, so. I've, I've started to wonder whether there's some litigation waiting to happen here, actually, because I, the, the withdrawal agreement with, between the EU and the, the UK said that this stuff was going to be clear. And it just so, you know, that is obviously quite a subjective kind of uh, uh, concept, but um, it just so obviously isn't. It's a miracle that the Home Office is getting away with just this absolutely insanely badly drafted rubbish. And just to finish up on that statement of changes, uh, many of them, not all of them, but many of them came into force on the 6th of April, so just a few days ago. Then there were some immigration policy announcements in the budget at the start of March. Nothing that will happen right away. This is kind of looking more into the medium term, 
sneak preview of what might go into the immigration rules in a year's time sort of thing, but they uh, flagged a new visa route for people working on fintech scale-up companies, so financial technology businesses uh, that have gone beyond the startup, they're a scale-up, which is apparently the evolved form. Uh, you may not need a sponsor for this fintech scale-up route, although that's still uh, slightly unclear, but coming down the track anyway. There'll be a review of the Innovator route, which has been a total car crash, as we've discussed before, and a new global business mobility visa, which just sounds like a rebrand of the sole representative visa. Um, but more about those proposals on the website. Family immigration, then. The government has admitted, following legal challenges, that its policy on fee waivers for entry clearance is unlawful. So this is about when do you not have to pay for a visa? Essentially, you get the fees waived. And it's a separate policy, this one on entry clearance, to the policy on fee waivers for permission to remain. So at the moment, this entry clearance policy for fee waivers is very restrictive. Uh, exceptional circumstances is the test. And following this legal challenge, that should now be changed to be brought into the line, into line with the policy on fee waivers for permission to remain i.e. the test will be affordability, not exceptional circumstances. So that should help some people. Um, the policy hasn't changed yet. Um, they've admitted that it's unlawful and will take their sweet time actually changing it. But in the sort of coming months, we should get a change. W one thing I didn't, I suppose, understand about this policy, Colin, is I, I presume it can't apply to just anyone applying for a visa. Like if you're applying for a work visa, you can't invoke the fee waiver policy. It's more about family members with human rights reasons to come to the UK? Yeah, I think that's right. I think this is sort of something that will arise in essentially in family cases. And it, and it's a very welcome change because, you know, the, the, the cost of visas from out of country can be um, very high and and prohibitive. And that's why, you know, a handful of these kind of applications are free, like the refugee family reunion ones, for example. Um, so, no, it's, it's great news, basically, great news. Super. And then an upper tribunal case on the interplay between partner visas and parent visas, or permission on the partner route and permission on the uh, parent route to, to be more accurate. So the case is Walid Ahmad Katak, 2021 UKUT 63 IAC. So Mr. Katak had permission to remain in the UK as a parent. Uh, he had a British child here. He then started a new relationship, and that gave him trouble when it came to extending his permission to remain as a parent because the rules say you can't be in the parent route if you have a partner. So the question was, did this fairly new relationship where they hadn't cohabited for two years or gotten married or anything, did that mean he now had a partner for the purposes of this rule, which disqualified him from being a parent? And the upper tribunal said, no, the meaning of partner in this context should be the same as the normal definition of partner elsewhere in the rules, i.e. married or, or cohabiting for two years. So the fact that he had this stable relationship falling short of that did not disqualify Mr. Katak from renewing his permission as a parent. Uh, so that's interesting. And I suppose also to note, if you didn't know that other people in this situation with more established relationships would fall foul of that rule, right? And, and not be able to stay in the parent route. Yes. Yeah. I, I think interesting might be stretching it slightly even for, for immigration lawyers, but no, it's, it's really useful for those who it affects, obviously. Um, it's, it's slightly surprising the Home Office thought this one, didn't just concede the, the JR, because it, it seems like a, a fairly sort of obvious outcome to me. But 
Um, yeah, they didn't, and um, it's useful to have it useful to have it clarified, basically. And it, it also underlines the difference between you know the five year route and the ten year route. It's it's a very substantial difference getting five year route settlement and ten year route settlement. One of them is a lot more convenient and less expensive than the other. A case then to do with the regulation of the conduct of immigration lawyers. Well, these Hamid cases that you mentioned earlier, Duncan Lewis solicitors were summoned to a disciplinary Hamid hearing at the High Courts uh, to do with an urgent judicial review application they'd filed. So the gist of the problems was that the application was A, not urgent, B, not in the right format, and C, lodged seemingly on behalf of people Duncan Lewis didn't actually represent. So the High Court, not impressed, but didn't consider the issue serious enough to refer to the solicitor's regulator, so just an official scolding. Uh, and in mitigation, it might also be pointed out that the case had to do with uh, asylum seekers in the camp at Penali in Wales, where conditions are notoriously bad. I think they have now closed that camp. Uh, and Duncan Lewis, the firm, had got some clients out of there, and this application was about trying to get many of the other inmates of the camp transferred out as well, which may explain their uh, gusto uh, and overlooking the procedures of the court. Uh, So that judgment, uh, DVP 2021 EWHC 606 admin. Yeah, the application had its flaws. I think it's clear from the the judgment. But in the the write-up I did for this one, it's not hard to imagine the frustration that the legal team was feeling in in acting for these people because every time they put in an individual application, the Home Office conceded the case and transferred the person out. But everybody else was left behind and new people were being transferred in all the time. So it wasn't having the effect of kind of saving the others. It was it was just sort of helping those people who actually had access to a lawyer. And access to a lawyer is not easy when you're in Penali. It's right at you know the extreme end of extreme west of of Wales, where there aren't very many immigration judicial review specialists. Um, they're sort of in residence. So um, no, it, it's it's quite an interesting it's an interesting case and sort of reminder of how careful you have to be using the urgent procedure. Um, and this case clearly just wasn't suitable for it. I think in in retrospect, um, but it's also I think raises some interesting issues about the issue of standing and how um, how one can litigate on behalf of vulnerable people in the, within the constraints of a legal system that requires individual challenges to be brought but where one of the, the other, where the other party the home office sort of just merrily concedes them one by one it's, it's it's a really challenging situation to find yourself in Let's do, there's a case on human rights to look at. There was a man from Belarus who tried to claim asylum in the UK back in 1998. He refused asylum. Belarus wouldn't take him back. And after much chewing and froing, he was released on immigration bail in 2003 and was just in limbo ever since. It couldn't be removed, couldn't get asylum, couldn't work or claim benefits. And not surprisingly, his mental and physical health deteriorated to his drug and alcohol addictions, all sorts of of long-term suffering. And the Upper Tribunal has now said uh, enough is enough. This limbo has dragged on so long that for human rights reasons, he must now be granted permission to remain. Uh, Which seems to be the first time that a so-called limbo argument has succeeded. Uh, Article 8, based on just your having no status and not being removed for so long. So uh, a landmark case, really, and that is... Uh, R-A-M 
First Sector State Legal Limbo 2021 UKUT 62 IAC. Yeah, good outcome for that individual. But I mean, what an extreme set of facts. And, you know, it, it does nobody any credit that, you know, you can succeed on those grounds. But, I, what, you know, what, what was going on before this? You have to, you just think that, was he not bringing legal challenges or was it, I, you know, just the, the the sheer, the sheer length of time and suffering involved in this is just is just gobsmacking. I think but there we go. Coming towards the end of our updates, just another case quickly on the interpretation of the immigration rules, uh, in particular the long residence rules. So if you remain in the UK lawfully for ten continuous years, you can get indefinite leave to remain, so long as you aren't out of the country for more than eighteen months in that ten years. So then the question in this case was, what do you mean 18 months? How long is that exactly? The Home Office guidance says 18 times 30 days, uh, 30 days in each month, so 540 days. But the lady in this case had been absent for three days longer than that. She argued, hang on, 18 months, you can also think of it as a year and a half. So 365 days plus 182, 183 days. And that gives you 548 days, and the upper tribunal agreed with her. So 18 months is 548 days, not 540 days, according to the case of Chang, 2021, UKUT 65, IAC. Yeah, I've got anything to add on that one. That's um, useful to know, but fairly niche. Absolutely. And finally, as you flagged, there's this proposed code of conduct for Home Office presenting officers that's in the works. So presenting officers represent the Home Office at the immigration tribunals. So they argue against lawyers in front of judges, but they aren't regulated remotely like lawyers. So there are moves afoot to sort of professionalize their role somewhat. And this copy of the draft code of conduct for presenting officers came to us via our source in the Home Office, a presenting officer who writes for us anonymously time to time and it's just the code is just 13 points about you know don't this don't mislead the courts cross-examination should be relevant seems pretty sensible to me uh colin's barrister you i imagine have more than 13 rules to follow in terms of your professional conduct um but would you welcome this it, it levels the playing field somewhat i think it's good news and i think it's good to have some clarity for presenting officers themselves whether it's really going to make much difference to anything in the short term, I don't know. And it's not kind of, um, you know, I think it would be a mistake to think of this as being something that's a tool that can be used in court by um, an advocate for the other side or or by a judge or anything. I think this is very much an internal matter for the for the Home Office. It, it could also, though, I've been doing this for what, 20 years now, and I've complained about the conduct of a presenting officer, I think, twice. And that's not because the conduct of, of my opponents from the Home Office has always been exemplary. I, often it, it is actually. Most of them are pretty good um, in, in, in my experience, particularly more sort of recent years. But the, when I have made complaints, I've been completely fogged off. You know, I've acted with real restraint and only made complaints where I feel somebody has really crossed a very clear line and done something that's really properly unacceptable. Um, accusing my clients of criminal conduct when there's no evidence for it, it's not in the refusal letter, and and stuff, you know, really outrageous stuff, basically, which would clearly be a breach of the bar code of conduct. You know, there are rules that barristers are um, bound by, and and as you say, you know, there's more than there's more than thirteen of them. So you know, it could be useful from the point of view of actually holding people to account through complaints as well. I suppose that's not necessarily something that 
um, the Home Office or presenting officers would welcome, I guess. But you know, that's how kind of cultural change happens over time. But um, yeah, it, it, it's it's certainly an interesting development, and and I think a, a welcome one. But we shouldn't have unrealistic expectations. Yeah, it's interesting, and obviously, when that draft code of conduct becomes a published code of conduct, uh, we will uh, let readers know. I don't know if it'll be made public, but at least we'll know when it's kind of finalized internally and uh, we will put it on the website. Right. Well, I think that wraps everything up for that episode and covers off um, things in March. So we'll be back next month. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.